Welcome back to Commodity Conversations by Mercado. We have another one of our longer form conversation episodes in store today. And this is part two of Robert Herman's talk with David Cornish from Marcus Oldham Agricultural College on the trends in commodity markets. But this time they're drilling down into what this means from a farming perspective for decision making and also managing some of those downside risks. So thanks again to David for letting us share this episode with you, and I really hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, David. Nice to be back again. Yeah. Well, Robert, as I say, sort of encapsulating what we're talking about last time, we, we, we seem to have gone through a phase where, certainly from the protein market perspective, we, we seem to be going into a, a pretty good phase. Would that be a fair call? That's right. That's 100% right. And we, we mentioned last week, we talked about the, um, you know, mining to dining. And, and, you know, our view is that we're very much in that dining boom right now. You know, the numbers actually tell the story a bit, David, as well. Um, not that they're always the be all and end all, but um, we're certainly seeing prices for um, meat proteins uh, at, at terrific levels, levels that, you know, 10 years ago, we would have only dreamt of. So, so for example, let's have a look at lamb, for instance. What are you seeing there? Well, lamb, um, I think we mentioned this last week, but the, the movement in these markets started around 2011, 2012. And if you look back to there, we can see that the lamb price has, has more than doubled. It's more than doubled over that period. And that by any measurement is a really good indicator of, uh, of the strength of demand. I suppose uh, we've also got to have a look at supply in that context though, you know, just to keep it all in perspective. And, you know, the interesting thing is that suppliers actually hasn't shrunk and supply has been maintained. So it isn't, hasn't been a supply-driven increase in price. It's been a demand-driven increase in price. And, and for a market to double over any, and commodity markets especially, for them to double is extraordinary, really. So it's interesting you say that because I, I pulled out an old budget of mine going back to in the mid-90s, I think. And I... You know, being a banker, I was fairly conservative, even on the on home farm, and I was using like $25, $30 a lamb. You know, what, are we, what prices are we sort of talking today? Well, we're seeing um, on carcass weight basis, we're seeing prices that have got an eight in front of them. You know, which, and I know this is a little bit, it's in the winter where prices generally spike up a little bit, but we have seen $9. We saw almost $10. Um, and even, you know, just to re-emphasise it, in, in 2012, the lamb indicator was 400 cents at this time of the year in the winter. It was 400 cents. Yeah. Um, today, if we're talking about sheep and lamb, we've got the mutton indicator at 625 to 650 cents. So there's been a really big change in the price structures and they're being delivered directly back to farmers who are breeding and producing those lambs and sheep. So, so I suppose that the thing in my back of my mind, again, is, is this sustainable? Is it, is it, are we just looking at, I mean, these are decile nine uh, prices. How sustainable are they? Or do, are we likely to see a reaction to these prices? Well, you certainly, it, it, there's always a reaction. Now, the question is whether or not there's enough momentum or impetus to uh, survive that reaction. And so one of the reactions we see is that we see domestic consumers of lamb, people who have been, you know, Australians have eaten lamb all their lives. So we know what the price expectation is. And one of the things they're saying is lamb's very dear. However, to balance that off, you've got new markets coming on board who are more in tune with these sort of prices. And, and so lamb is sort of in, in the mindset is a 
a more prestigious article and and they're used to paying for it. So, and the, the other question about, is it sustainable? Well, I just had a look back this time last year, so 12 months ago, the lamb indicator was about the same. So we've gone for a year now of lamb indicate of the lamb indicator holding strong. Mutton indicator is actually higher. Um, but then remembering this time last year, we were in the middle of a, a drought sell-off of, of ewes and mutton. And uh, uh, so those prices were pretty good then. But now that supply's tightened, it's got a little bit higher again. I was interested in one of your charts uh, on Twitter. And can I recommend anyone who's on Twitter, they get onto the Mercado site. Um, and you were looking at changing demand patterns from different countries. And, and, and the, U, the US had, had taken over from the Middle East as our second uh, most popular destination. I think that was on a per tonnage basis. Obviously, China's right up there. But that's fascinating that we now have the US coming into the market in the way it is. Yes, and the US has always been ticking away in, in the lamb market, and, and those people producing lambs will see some of those very heavy lambs, big heavy lambs, and wondering where they go. They don't see them on our butcher shop floor or our supermarkets. Well, they go to the US and they go into the food services industry, so they're using the lamb slightly different to what we do here. But remembering again that the US is 10 times the size of Australia in terms of population, so we don't need a heck of a lot of people in the US um, deciding to go out for a, for a lamb meal at a restaurant to build a bit of demand there. And, and it's the same with the other markets. You mentioned China. Um, we, we keep referencing back to this period of 2011, 2012, and it certainly coincided with China having a, a much greater appetite for red meat coming out of Australia. And I think it's really interesting. You talk about, you know, uh, the Australian experience with, with lamb as, as, as a staple commodity almost. But to some of these other countries, I suppose it is seen as a luxury product. So paying a premium for it is not something that they're unexpected to do. While for us, it's sort of like, oh, gee, you know, you're serious about paying that for lamb? Yes, that, that's exactly right, David. Of course, remembering that um, I think in Australia, our food prices are very, very reasonable relative to our yeah. um, relative to our standard of living. But it's what you get used to. And and we, we certainly get used to having... Um, well, we're not Australians aren't used to having lamb at these sort of prices, but the prices aren't determined by the Australian domestic consumer. They're determined by the uh, the market that will pay the most. And if that's the export market, then our domestic consumers will have to tag along and 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 suck it up to some degree. So it's a fair and reasonable assumption to say that maybe the prices aren't as uh, they're not going to continue as high as they are, but certainly that mm. we're going to see higher prices than we had maybe over if we take a long-term average, for instance. That's correct. And if we just, we, I know we're focusing on lamb and, and sheep meats a little bit. Right Get on now. a brief in a minute, mate. <laughs> yeah. if, we focus, if we focus on that, you've then got to have a look at, um, there's no doubt that high prices, the old story was that high prices are the best remedy for high prices. High prices. Yeah. And, and that's true. However, you've then got to have a look at what is driving that. And so that goes back to your supply and demand equation. And we know that demand has grown because new people and new markets have discovered us. But supply is also tight. And one of the biggest, there's only two really serious exporters of sheep and lamb meats to the world. And that's Australia and New Zealand. And we both now have a record low sheep flock. Yeah. Now in Australia, we've managed to switch some of our merino sheep across to producing sheep meats lamb and lamb and, uh, and and mutton 
in New Zealand, though, as the flocks decreased because it was predominantly a crossbred flock, they're just sheep. That that just means their exports of, yeah. of lamb uh, have been diminished as their flock has been diminished. Whereas we've had this balance a little bit where we've sort of hived off production out of the wool industry yeah. and switched it across into lamb. We can mix it a bit up. Yeah. yeah. So just so I, I've worked out as a consumer that my lamb's too too uh, expensive to buy, so I'm now going over to the beef cabinet. Mm. Um, I'm not seeing any joy there as a consumer, am I, mate? No, not a lot of fun there. And I can remember we had a call from a, a big consumer, a, um, a food processor here back in the 2014 drought. And he said, look, I'm reading in the, in the stock and land and the Weekly Times that uh, cattle prices are low in the markets because of the drought. But every week, my meat price is getting dearer. You know, what's going on? And what was happening was that the meat price into the US, and they were using a lot of trim, so the 90 CLs, yep. et cetera, it was booming. And, and so, an ex, so having these export markets has really been, is the underpinning of these stronger prices. And, and so the question you posed earlier, David, was how sustainable are they? Well, they're more sustainable now than ever because of that diversity of markets and that, um, that breadth of, of demand we have. And they're going to be underpinned by tight supply, whether you're talking about sheep and lamb for the reasons we talked about, or whether you're talking about cattle. Yeah. We've now got a 30 year low cow herd as well. So I always make the comparison here. It's not like grains where if you have, if the grain price stays at $450 a ton for a year, for wheat, all of a sudden wheat can be planted all around the world. And in six months time, you will have excess supply with livestock that's a much slower burn. And, and in fact, in Australia, it's going to be very, very difficult to build those flocks and those herds given the prices of restocking. So, so, so therefore, you know, we're hearing these, rough rumours are the right word, mate, about US having a build-up of capacity because obviously they had the problems with COVID in their, in their processing areas and, and it's resulted in a, the, the likelihood that there's a significant amount of beef that's going to come under the market around January. Is, is that... Is something we should be aware of in the short term? Uh, look, that's already coming onto the market. But the processes have got back in, on track. I think the last figure we saw was about 95% of capacity in the US again. And that beef and pork is coming back into the into the meatworks. There's no doubt about that. The, the, um, the interesting thing is that there are so many balls up in the air. So you've got the US-China discussion. You know, they're taking extra product. I think there was a record shipment of pork from the US to China to, to compensate for their shortages. So there's this whole lot of this global impact that in general is all positive for our outlook. Now that, and I know a lot of farmers listen to those sort of things and say, yeah, but something will go wrong. Well, <laughs> eventually, eventually something does go wrong. Yeah. But we can say, well, it, it, it will go wrong based on history. Something will happen, but we just can't see what it's going to be right now. Yeah, because the, the fundamentals, I mean, we look at we got look at stock numbers around the world. We look at um, growth of, 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 of this middle middle income or areas around, as we talked about last week. You know, the demand and supply factors would all be suggesting that, that, that there's, there's robustness under this. And I hate saying that because yeah. as soon as we say something like that, something's going to come out of left centre. But it, I've never seen, I think, uh, things lined up like they are at the moment. We might, you're right that, that we have to be careful about saying things like that. How And, and like the old um, financial advice, you know, but this time it's different. Yeah. Um, 
but maybe it is a bit different, David, because we have had something come out of left field just in the last few months. I don't know whether you've been noticing or not, but uh, there has been a big change and it's impacted on the globe. Yeah. But when you have a look at what it's done to red meat prices, it hasn't had the same impact. And, yeah. and I think partly it's because we do have this, uh, you mentioned it before, this growing middle class, these people who, who have more wealth to spend and they want to spend it on things like red meat and whether it's a lot or a little doesn't matter because what's happening that middle class that's growing is coming out of much bigger populations than we've ever seen before so in the past we saw countries like korea and taiwan and japan and that emerge from from you know struggle to to being middle class to you know first world nations uh, and and we said so we saw what the model looks like but they weren't the massive populations that are moving through now in places, and China's the classic example, where that middle class is just a huge number of people. So, so again, if you were sitting down doing a budget, you're probably looking at price trends from 2014 in the meat industry, aren't you? Yes, you would. You wouldn't go back much further than that. Yeah. And and, and so if we look at even, even just um, year on year for the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, remembering this time, remembering the conditions this time last year, we were in a terrible drought. New South Wales was just shocking and and parts of Queensland and South Australia and even some of the northern parts of Victoria. We've the the, the cattle indicator is fifty four percent higher than this time last year. Yeah. So you know that's telling us that we and, and, and our herd is at a 30 year low. So we're going to slaughter less cattle in the next two years. We're going to export less beef. We're going to have less pressure on the market given an average season. Um, if, and all we do is just look it forward and say, well, if the season is going to be average, then there's going to be no yes. pressure on supply. Yep. And, and so that, 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 re, that restocker demand is going to continue for a couple of years, is that? Yes, it will. And it, it, remembering restocking demand, a lot of people think of restocking is that people are going out and buying stock. What most of the restocking happens is by people retaining more stock, Retain, in their, oh, retaining more cattle in the herd. So yeah. more heifers, an extra age group of cows. And especially when you're selling your surplus stock at a price that's almost double what it was two years ago, mm. you're getting good income and you're in, and you're feeling like it's a good industry to be in. So why wouldn't you keep a few more cows and a few more heifers back and try and breed up given normal season conditions? Okay, so that's probably, and again, I might be wrong here. I'm, I'm hoping you can prove me wrong, but I think that's the good news stories, isn't it? Can we move on to wool now? <laughs> uh. What's yeah. happening, mate? What's happening? Well, if you we just talked a minute ago, David, about looking back to 2011, 12 as to when the um, we saw the meat prices take off. Well, the wool market is back at the levels it was in 2012. Yeah. And, and it's just tragic. And in fact, year on year, so this time last year, it's 35% back on on in 12 months yeah we'd already had that was off the peak so the so the if we use the eastern market indicator as an example it's about 1100 cents yeah i mean the peak was about 2100 cents yeah which was about 18 months ago so we already had a decline in the market and and it's sort of like a cyclical thing the wool market we've seen for years it'll cycle roughly 18 month cycles and that was happening but then of course COVID hit and it's been an, a product that hasn't had that underlying consumer demand that that absolute necessity of, of say a food site um of meat yep and and it's been you know it's been kicked to kick down the down the alleyway 
for my own sake, uh, Robert, and I hope for the audiences. So I know that 80, well, it's around about 80% of the wool is, is, is sent to China, mm. isn't it? Mm. Yeah. How much is then processed and then sold to the rest of the world from China? Or is about it... 50% of that. Oh, 50%. 50%. So yeah. we can't look at China in, in isolation when we come to the wool industry, can we? Not at all. We, there was a time when we could have, um, when, when the manufacturing first moved to China, because it moved to China not because of their consumer demand. It moved because it was a cheaper place to process yep. Yep. And, and also a cheaper place to handle the effluent that comes out of, a pro processing, um, out of the process. But now that middle class we've been talking about all the time, is, and given the size of that middle class in China, they're now consuming almost 50% of, of our wool, um, at the retail level. So it makes sense that it would be processed there. I yep. know the, the, um, it's a tragedy really, because we talked about a low sheep flock. We've got, you know, a, a wool clip that is at a level that I never thought I would see again, you know, in my time, it's just, it's just collapsed. So we're going to be, uh, you know, have very low supply. And, and we've got now really demand that's been hit for six. And of course, what that's doing is it's impacting on the auction market. And in the short term now, we're also seeing growers holding back some supply. And I think we're, you know, we're probably holding it back about 10 or 12% more wool than what would normally be in the, in the system waiting okay. to be sold as yep. a result of these low prices. I suppose the other thing too is that, I mean, if you look at what's happening in obviously the, the, the protein market or the lamb market, that some producers would, they, I mean, I appreciate there are some merinos that, that can do both, but there would be a trend towards the, the broader end of the wall because of the increase in composites and, and prime lamb uh, producers. Would that be a fair call or are we not seeing that? Yes, we are. We are seeing that. And, uh, and one of the consequences of that is that that very strong crossbred wall that market has collapsed. And especially in wool that's not well prepared. When, when a market has weak demand, uh, the faults in wool or the, um, the poorly, you know, the wool doesn't look so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that struggles to find a home. And that's what we're seeing right now. So, yeah. and that, that's likely to continue for some time. Just going back to the major part of the clip though, of the marina, the point I would make, even though we're building up stocks, a bit like we did in 1990, we haven't got the supply that's going to impact as well as those stocks in the future. So that, so it's not going to have the same weight on the market. In, yes, in if, if you don't we, have that overhang. That's right, not the same overhang. And if we do see a recovery, it's, it's not going to be held back as significantly as what it was in 1990 when we had you know, 170 or 80 million sheep. We're now down to sort of low 60 million sheep and a bit of a, bit of a grower stockpile. Yeah, yeah. No, so again, so the, the potential for upside if it is there, and that, I suppose that's dependent on economic growth rates mm. and people getting out and buying luxury goods or, or whatever you want to call it, but is, is there, there's a potential for that once we see we see the, the world turn? There will be, that's right. And and remembering it's a great product and, and the world still is going to be conscious of things like, um, you know, eco-friendly and, yes. and natural and all that sort of thing. And at the same time, we're going. We're certainly not going to supply much into the world. It's not only the Australian flock that's low; it's it's sheep numbers worldwide are low. So, okay, productivity that's coming, the wool productivity is not going to be significantly um, dampening down any potential for a, a price increase. 
So, okay, so over the short time, we're, you know, it's probably reversed to what we're seeing in the other markets. And over the short period, we're probably seeing prices that will be lower than what we'd be looking if we were, we were doing a long-term budget. That's right. In wool, for sure, yeah. Mm. In, in other commodities, I think, I think also you want to be using conservative numbers, more conservative than these sort of prices. They seem yep. to me to be slightly elevated. But we haven't got that cliff edge that we're potentially looking over because of the numbers of stock that are out there. The low flock and the reasonable seasonal conditions that are, that are across most of the, the grazing area now are going to cushion any pullback. So as soon as there's a pullback in price, farmers will take supply off the market and they can hold it. They're not forced to sell yeah. as if we're in the middle of a, a raging drought or something. Yeah. And just, I mean, on the side, live cattle, uh, cattle into Indonesia, what's happening there? Well, it's a, it's a really strong demand-driven market. It's, uh, it's, and, and it's driven by the Indonesians. You know, they just, again, they're a country with a lot of people coming, uh, becoming more affluent. Yeah. Um, they also have this this double whammy problem though, in that they don't have a lot of electricity. So that's why the live cattle. Um, okay. They they love getting their meat fresh, uh, which means it's killed that morning or late late the night before, and uh, and it's transported out. It's into the market and it's on the kitchen table before you know it. Yes. So that really works well for those northern cattle and. I know that uh, countries like Indonesia will be pushing to try and improve their their um, societies a lot by electricity, that sort of thing. But it is a big project and a slow project. So in the longer term, I would say that those, um, you know, that demand and that market is pretty solid. Okay, mate. I suppose we want to. Uh, okay, let's let's take all that information now and think about how what we as a farmer might do if we want to sort of take some management over what prices we're receiving or, or getting now. Again, I'm not saying talking about being a price maker. I'm just saying we've got price, we've got risk. Is there a way that we can manage that in a, in a, in a constructive manner? I mean, if we're sitting down here talking about grain industry, obviously we could sit here and we could talk about swaps and options and you name it, there, there seems to be a really mature market. But the reality is in, in the livestock industry and or to less extent, the wool industry, there's not a hell of a lot of things we can do going long-term, can we, about managing price or even three months or six months is probably as about as far as we can do. I suppose the question is, do we need anything? Or you know, what's, what's, your, what's your thoughts about your, your top tips to a, a farmer who wants to manage their price? Well, one of, the, um, one of the top tips, I suppose, if you want to call it that, is that we've seen before when prices go up, farmers tend to expand their expenses to the same level so they spend more now this would be a time when you would look to lower your cost where you can and and we can do that in in and this isn't coming from a risk management or a, a, a strategic advisory point of view but if you're investing in things that will actually make you more productive then you're actually reducing your cost per kilogram or, or per head or whatever you want to see. And that's a good thing. In fact, there would be an argument, and I, I feel like I'm preaching the converted here when I'm talking to you, Dave, there would be an argument to say that is the single most important role of the farm manager to, to know where your costs are and continually trying to manage those down. Now, if you're doing that, you're actually future-proofing the business uh, just by being better at what you do. The other point that, can work in your favor is that 
if we, if we is, is look, not so much looking at the prices, but looking at your income. How can we actually take some risk out of your income? And we know that with a sheep enterprise, you will have, um, you'll have uh, probably some lambs to sell, you'll have mutton to sell, and you'll have wool to sell. Now, one of the ways is to look at the percentiles of those markets. And when the markets are at good levels and good percentiles, you just sell. And when they're not at good percentiles, you, you, maybe you take a decision to move your risk into other areas. And to give an example, it might mean that if you're shearing your wool clip this spring, and, and the percentiles are low and you've generated enough income from your, your sale of your weathers or your lambs or your surplus shears or whatever, you may decide to hold some of the wool that's not selling well um, because you can. I mean, that's one way of spread. And what it's doing, if you think about it, is spreading your sales risk over a longer period of time. Rather than saying, I shear in October, therefore I sell in November, you might say, look at the market and say, well, I can spread it. That then leads on to the responsibility. If you're going to do that, though, I think you then have a responsibility to say, I need to look at prices before I sell for, for wool as well. And so, again, we can say, if I took a view that I'm shearing in October, I might say that I've got six months to sell after there, but I also should be looking for prices six months before then and talking to my wool broker about that. And I can remember there was a, you know, one of my early lessons was that if you can get well set up, your sales program should look like a third, a third, a third. You should have a third pre-sold at prices that you've chosen because you don't have to sell beforehand, but you choose. Uh, you should sell a third in the market, which is not your pricing, it's just the market. And that, if you get those two things done, then you're probably in a position to hold on to a third. And, and using percentiles will help you determine which third to be hanging on to and which third to be selling. It's a really handy strategy, that, isn't it, Robert? Because it allow it gives you uh, basically protection over two thirds of your crop or your, your 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 commodity at any one time. Because if prices go up, well, you've got, you know, you're not locked in to two thirds, or you're taking. But if you, if prices go down, you've also got the two thirds leverage. So it, it gives you that freedom, but it, it, you know, it, it manages the risk you're facing. Well, we saw only um, probably six months ago that the wool market was offering prices 30, 40, 50% above where the market is now. Mm. Now, if you had have sold a third at that price, I'm not saying everybody would have sold everything at that price, but yep. if you had have just sold a third, it means that the, the bit you're going to sell now, you would, if you, were, if you were in the market now, you would look through the clip and say, well, these lots are selling okay. So that might be the wools that aren't burry or dusty or the good wools. Mm. And I might be prepared to keep the low, the inferior wools because they are at the lowest percentiles and, and, the, and the low percentiles are more likely to rise into the future than, than the others. And so it's about using those numbers to help make decisions. And, and that's what we think things like percentiles, which are a relatively new concept in, in uh, markets in, in agriculture, they, they tell us where we are relative to history, but they can give us some direction as to what we do into the future. So, so the tools we could use is, is we, what we're, in the wool industry, we're talking, what, six months? We can go out 12 months? Yeah, what, look, we can go out 12 months. And when the thing to be, if, you've got a, if you're a wool producer, the thing is to be ready and, and not to sort of get caught up in the, all the hype. So when the market thinks that, that it's, you know, thinks the, wool, the price is never going to come down, that's the time to sell forward because the forward price reflects everybody's attitude so if, if everything's optimistic the forward curve if you like 
is is yep. more likely to be up or flat than if everyone's pessimistic, then, then no one wants to take a forward position. And, you know, we're seeing that with grains at the moment where, you know, everybody's optimistic about supply coming forward so the buyers don't need to buy. It's when they're not optimistic about supply, they bid it up. So it's about thinking, you know, in the opposite to what everybody else is to some degree. Mm. Mm. What about in the in the, the meat uh, markets? Do we have the same uh, ability to sort of uh, manage that forward price or is it? No, we don't. We, yeah. we, we have a limited ability in, um, in meat markets where processors are generally trying to cover their, their supply issue. So they're not really looking to hedge price processes. What they're trying to do is secure supply to keep their plants going. Because remembering okay. a, a meat processing plant is not, doesn't really care where the price is, to be honest. So, you know, they'll be, their price will reflect what their buyers are, uh, you know, what their customers are selling, um, are buying for and what the farmers are selling for. So to reflect that. But what? But sometimes when they're worried about supply, um, they will offer forward prices. And, and unfortunately, that's not a great thing for producers because the times when they're offering forward prices is that they know as well as anybody that supply is going to be a problem, which is then generally going to support prices. So mm. the, the wool industry and the grain industry has a much better way of being able to um, hedge. And it's probably tied up David, because both those products are very storable. So people can take positions and store them. And, and you know, with grain, people can buy grain at harvest time and only use it, you know, at the end of the next year. But we, we have a futures market in Chicago for beef, don't we? Yes, we do. And it's a very good, in, in the US, it's a very good, well-traded product. And yeah. you have feedlots that will trade, you know, live cattle futures, uh, fed cattle futures and corn futures to really capture their margin yeah. in the feedlot. But we, we use that those uh, markets to help tell us where the prices are going. And you might have noticed when COVID was really a big problem, the uh, the US steer price fell down to about 90 cents a pound and it came from $1.30 yeah. a pound. So, we, so it was telling us that there was some risk on there for us and... Um, and that's what we use it for. But it's not possible to use those markets to hedge Australian product on. Mm, mm. No, it's just we just don't have a mature marketplace. No, and, and we also have the, the, the other things that influence us, you know, whether it's a good season, bad season here, um, you know, whether, you know, our Asian markets are booming or not. You know, there's a lot of other things that make hedging on the US markets a little bit uh, it's actually more risky than not hedging, to be honest. Well, it was good, mate. I, I, one of the things I talk to the students about is is that getting a, a decent profit margin is probably the best risk management strategy you, you can do. And, you know, you take it through. It gives you that buffer, buffering both from a commodity expert or a climate expert or whatever it is, that if you've got that margin, you, you can buffer it bit better than if you're trying to go hard and you've got a thin margin. Exactly. And... Um... And, and what happens, I think, is that people forget about that. And when markets improve and start to look at, you know, becoming traders on the market, focusing on, you're 100% right, David, focusing on your business and understanding where your break-even levels are and then trying to lower those break-even levels, it will either make you more resilient in bad times or it'll cause you to make more profit in good times. And, you know, that's a win-win. That's not a bad thing, is it? That's not a bad thing. <laughs> I'm sure that's that's probably a full semester of work for Marcus Oldham. No, that <laughs> I think it's, oh, it's it's taken me 30 years to try and work it out, mate. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Robert, listen, I think that's a really good place to, to finish off. I, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts and your wisdom over the last uh, two sessions. And hopefully at some stage further on the track, we can we can get you back on just to, to recap on what's happening in the market and, and any other thoughts you might have about where, where these markets are going or how we use them as, as, as students or, or farmers. I think it's always good to review and, and go back, especially for someone in our position. But I think it's also good for people who are in commodity markets to have some sort of a handle on on what's going on in the market. I mean, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be in the share market if you didn't, you know, have a bit of a feel for what's going on. Mm. And we don't think it should be overly complicated. We think it should be fairly simple, but we think you should have a view and that should go to sort of helping you make decisions at the farm level. Because that's what it's all about. It's about it's not about being a trader. It's about being a successful producer of commodity. And, and, and that success goes to the financial success of making a profit and then building on that profitable business. Excellent. I think if anyone wants to further these discussions with you, uh, you've got a website there. You've got with phone numbers and contact points. And uh, yeah, please take the opportunity to catch up with uh, Robert and his team at Mercado. So thank you very much. Thanks, David.